Americans have been losing ground for a generation. Right now, 40% of us can't afford to meet our basic needs, food, clothing, housing. Things are badly out of whack. Welcome to the Vermont Conversation. I'm David Goodman. About 1 in 10 people, both nationally and in Vermont, live below the poverty line. Low-income people are everywhere. There's a pernicious myth that poverty is a personal failure or a character flaw. The myth goes that if people would just work harder, they could pull themselves up. But a new book argues that poverty is not a personal failing. It's actually the result of bad policy and it can be solved. Colleen Shaddix and Joanne Goldblum are the authors of Broke in America, Seeing, Understanding, and Ending U.S. Poverty. Colleen Shaddix and Joanne Goldblum, welcome to the Vermont Conversation. I'd like to begin with you, Joanne, and just ask, what is the face of poverty today? What is the most typical profile of a person who is defined as poor? Thanks for that question. Um, it's, it's actually something that I think most of us don't really understand. And that is that the face of poverty in America is a white child. So in the media, we often see poverty portrayed as um, a black person or a Latinx person. But the fact is the highest percentage of people in poverty in the United States are white and the highest percentage of people in poverty are children. And right now in America, about 44% of American children are poor or low income. And that means they're living at or below 200% of the federal poverty level. Colleen, I wonder if you could uh, talk for a minute about what is the the federal poverty level And what's the problem with how the federal poverty level is defined? It's very antiquated. It overestimates the importance of food in budgets and underestimates the importance of healthcare and housing because it was, it was developed decades ago before these things became relatively more expensive. So for a family of three, the federal poverty level would be just over $21,000 which is not a realistic amount for a family of three to live on. Indeed, twice that would be challenging for a family of three to live on. So because we calculate so badly, we really end up underestimating the number of Americans who are living in poverty. So we're speaking then of families of three that live on about $42,000 a year by the definition you've described. If somebody is working full-time and getting the minimum wage, now I realize the minimum wage differs uh, vastly from a federal minimum wage in the $7.5 range to in a place like Vermont, we are moving towards $15. But um, So somewhere in there, give us an idea of what a full-time minimum wage worker makes. Um, You know, a full-time minimum wage worker makes just about the federal poverty level. Um, You know, in some states, they actually make below the federal poverty level. The only state as of the beginning of 2021, the District of Columbia has the highest 
minimum wage. And it is the only, I want to say state, but it's not a state. It is the only place in the country where working minimum wage full-time brings you above the federal poverty level for a family of four. <laughs> so there are many, many U.S. Americans who work full-time and more um, because much, many low-wage jobs are hourly, don't have sick time, don't have paid time off. So when we talk about these numbers, what we mean is that somebody working full-time 40 hours a week, 52 weeks a year, never missing an hour makes that much money. And so assuming you take a little bit of time off here and there, you don't work every day, it, you, you wouldn't actually get to the federal poverty level with a full-time job. Hmm. Colleen, what are the primary, the biggest drivers of poverty in America today? Well, you just touched on it. Wages are certainly a big driver. Um, if you look at real wages from the 1970s to now, workers have made almost no gains. They've gone up something like 12%, whereas healthcare has gone up more than 100%. Um, and I would add that CEO pay has gone up more than 900%, but for, for most of us, it's about 12%. So Americans have been losing ground for a generation. Right now, 40% of us can't afford to meet our basic needs, food, clothing, housing. Things are badly out of whack. And the same is true for, for public programs like TANF and SNAP. They, they definitely need an invigoration over what they are. But it's important to remember that most people in poverty are working. Mm -hmm. You know, hard work is always sort of billed as the way out of poverty. Well, no, it's not. We, we talked to hundreds of people in poverty for this book, and most of them worked. Many of them worked much harder than I ever will. That uh, leads to my asking about the old truism, uh, give a man a fish and you feed him for the day, teach a man to fish, you feed him for a lifetime. You, in your book, uh, take issue with this about a, as, as it being a way to help the poor. Uh, Joanne, talk about why this old truism is not true. Um, it's really... What I'm going to talk about is really the thesis of our books and of our book. It, it assumes that saying assumes there's something wrong with the person. There's a lack of knowledge, a lack of ambition, a, a lack of something for that person. Our society has this horror of supplying people with basic needs, with anything. When someone is hungry, the most sensible thing to do is to give them food. Once they're properly nourished, you can talk with them about their hunter-gathering skills, right? It's possible that they are a terrific fishing, you know, they're terrific at fishing, but they live in a landlocked state or they live someplace where pollution has killed off all the fish. You know, it, it, doesn't, um, it doesn't make sense. Everything starts with basic needs. So you have to imagine trying to get your life in order when you haven't eaten. And what we really talked about a fair amount in the book and we think is an important thing to think about is that that saying drives 
a lot of American public policy. So for example, um, temporary assistance for needy families, TANF, is, um, you know, it's commonly referred to as welfare to work. And there are a variety of issues with TANF, but one of them is that the most common thing for women to be trained in as a part of the welfare to work program is to become a certified nursing assistant. By and large, while there's a huge need for certified nursing assistants, they're paid very poorly and often poverty level wages. So we're not really helping people to become self-sufficient, um, you know, if, if that makes sense. Colleen, you were going to add to that. Yeah. Um, one of the sites that we covered really brings that home for me. Um, went to interview a bunch of middle school age girls who had failed gym during the school year. So they were part of this rather well-funded, foundation-funded program over the summer where they were supposed to do exercise and also learn about a healthy diet. So they did all this photography work around their neighborhood to document the food environment and they wrote about it and they spoke about it. And these girls could go on and on about how terrible fast food was and how bad it was that there was so much of it in their neighborhoods. And I said to them at the end, do any of you still eat it? And they all did. One girl told me that she ate it every night for dinner. And I said, well, tell me about that, given everything you just said. Both of her parents were certified nursing assistants. The only way they could support their families was to work two jobs. So between shifts, they picked the kids up from school. They went through a drive-through. They left them home with their burgers and fries. And then they went off to work another eight hours. What else were they supposed to do? If that foundation had, had given those families money directly so that somebody could have been home to steam some vegetables, it would have done a lot more to make those children's life healthy. Right. And I think to add to that, it's so easy, you know, so much of what foundations do in the United States, as well as federal programs, is think about fixing what it is people do and not spending the money to actually give them what they need. Well, speaking of that, Joanne uh, Goldblum, you are the CEO and founder of the National Diaper Bank Network, and you also founded uh, two years ago the Alliance for Period Supplies. We're talking here about really basic human needs, things that address the most basic bodily functions. Why have you in your life, uh, you know, your professional life, chosen to focus on those things? What brought your attention to diapers and period supplies? You know, I'm a social worker, and I was about 17 years ago, I was working at Yale Child Study Center doing what we call community-based social work. So I'd go to people's homes who are having a variety of different issues in their lives. And what they all had in common was they were very, very poor. And as somebody who thought that they understood poverty in the United States, you know, 
I'm a social worker. I was working at Yale. I really thought I understood it. I went into people's homes and I saw a level of poverty that was completely overwhelming. So a mile from my house in the same city that I live in, I would go to people's homes who didn't have heat and hot water. I would work with families, what all of these families had in common is that they had children. And those children didn't have the things they need. I saw, I worked with a family that never had toilet paper. And after a lot of talking and research and thoughtfulness, the only answer was to give them toilet paper. There was no other, there's not a clinical intervention for being poor. There's only giving people what they need. And so I became um, obsessed with the idea of getting people the things they needed. And so I started with diapers. And the reason I started with diapers, aside from the fact that people need them, so the need is very real, um, I always wanted to give away period supplies also. But at the time, what I thought and I think was true is that um, nobody would have given me money 15 years ago for a tampon bank, right? Menstruating women, menstruating people are not a terribly attractive demographic for fundraising. <laughs> Babies are. And so what the diaper bank movement has become is for a lot of people, a window into poverty in the United States. So you have to understand if you support the diaper bank or the National Diaper Bank Network, that there are families who are so poor in the United States, so your neighbors, that they have to leave their di baby in a dirty diaper. Mm -hmm. And I think for a lot of people, that is really um, a much easier way to understand what poverty means. Hmm. Um, Colleen, talk about the different and disparate impacts of poverty on um, men and women and on people, communities of color uh, and uh, whites. Just sort of tease that apart for us. Well, poverty discriminates. Um, you know, we started off saying that the largest group in poverty are white Americans. However, um, people of color are disproportionately in poverty. Women are disproportionately in poverty and much more likely to be in deep poverty than men. Um, and this is not an accident. This is a structure that was set up. I will give one example that we talk about a lot about in the book is redlining. Um, most wealth for middle-class Americans comes from our homes. There were laws put into place in the 30s that made it more difficult for African-Americans to buy homes. But even though we passed the Fair Housing Act back in the 60s, the rate of African-American home ownership has not risen because we've never put the money into doing enforcement and actually checking up on lenders and seeing if they're doing the right thing or not. And we talked with a lot of people of color who lost their homes through predatory loans because that was the only funding available to them. Um, the structures go on and on. If you look at 
jobs that require the same skill level, like say mid-skill jobs, we keep talking about CNAs, that's, that's high school plus a little special training. You can pair a CNA to a construction worker, high school plus a little special training. And the construction worker is earning much more and also has a career level, um, a career ladder rather. A CNA can work for 30 years. In fact, I interviewed a woman who worked for 30 years who never got a raise other than the cost of living raise. Um, there's no feeling that you learn something, that your experience is valuable, that you get better and more valuable to your employer. Hmm. Um, we're at a moment of possibility now. There is a new presidential administration. And the title of your book, Broken America, Seeing, Understanding, and Ending U.S. Poverty. So clearly, you imagine there is a way to end poverty. And perhaps in this moment, it's possible to even speak of some of the ways. Uh, Joanne Goldblum, could you talk about some of the solutions that, and some of the ways that you could imagine ending poverty? Sure. So the biggest thing when it comes to ending poverty is addressing this gap that we've talked about, the gap between what people need and what they make. And so there are a few different ways that we see to do that. Of course, raising the minimum wage, right? Wages have to meet um, the demand of people's budgets. Another real possibility is um, universal basic income. So many countries do that. Again, we know how much money people need to meet their basic needs. And we need to find a way to get them that money. It's really, and I, I don't mean to be flippant, it is that simple. The issue is that people don't have enough money. And so, you know, the ways that we talk about in the book for people to help make this change is, you know, some of the things we talk about are very, very simple, and some of them are very big. You know, some of them are as simple as asking your school board to report on student attendance. It's easy. Um, you know, stand up for policies that raise, raise pay and give people access to resources. So that could be a lot of different things. Um, you know, we talk about the fact that zoning is all local, you know, what kind of um, requirements you have for space, how many people can legally occupy, if you can have multifamily housing, you know, all those kinds of things are local. Anybody in a community can get onto their local zoning board or commission. Some places it's elected, some places it's appointed, but that's doable. Um, you know, and, and we also talk about the fact that poverty is a lack of resources, not a moral failing. And we encourage everybody in any situation you're in, when you hear poor people being talked about in a way that indicates you, somebody believes that they are morally missing something or aren't trying hard enough to be able to talk about the fact that that's just not necessarily the case. 
You know, it's a lack of resources. All that it means to be poor is not to have enough money. What would, uh, you know, for many people, universal basic income was something they first heard raised in the Democratic primary debates. One of the candidates, Andrew Yang, uh, spoke of it as a, a key platform. Explain what UBI is, what it would look like. Uh, either one of you feel free to jump in on this. So UBI is a standard payment that every citizen gets without question. Um, most of the proposals are for about $2,000 a month. There's also lots of variations on it, guaranteed minimum income, so that the money would go to uh, people in greater need. But, you know, these proposals go back. Martin Luther King and Richard Nixon both thought they were a pretty good idea. Uh, Nixon put Dick Cheney and Donald Rumsfeld in charge of piloting such programs in the United States. And they found that they saved a lot on health care, particularly mental health care. They found that people took more time for their education. There were a lot of societal benefits to putting some kind of floor under people below which they couldn't fall. Hmm. The, uh, if, oh, I'm sorry. If I could just add to that. Sure. You know, one of the big pushbacks about UBI in the United States is that lots of people think that they'll be that the money would be used for you know what we call sin purchases, um, alcohol and tobacco, and none of the um, studies that have been done and UBI has been done in a number of countries, um, and you know areas of the country, none have shown an uptick in these sin purchases. And in fact, an experiment in Mexico found that problem drinking decreased because, you know, they surmise that when you reduce financial stress, people are less likely to use unhealthy coping mechanisms. Hmm. So right now, uh, President Joe Biden has talked about addressing the pandemic as his highest priority. You've contended in your book that confronting poverty could complement uh, wor uh, working on stopping COVID. How exactly would that work? Uh, Colleen, do you wanna? Um, absolutely, right now we're seeing that COVID is at its highest rate in low-income communities where people live in bad conditions where they can't practice social distancing, where people can't afford to say no to work, even if work is really unhealthy, where people are disproportionately incarcerated. Um, and not only does COVID spread extremely quickly in prisons, but people cycle in and out of those prisons, staff cycle in and out. So there, we, we know that there is a community contagion going on. Um, you know, the best way to protect against COVID is to give all of us reasonable, decent living conditions. And if you have to take public transportation to work, if you have to work in a high contact industry and you don't have the right to say to a customer, hey, you don't have a mask on, I won't serve you, you're, you're tremendously vulnerable. And we've seen that. Hmm. 
Okay, well, I want to thank both of you for joining us on the Vermont Conversation, Colleen Shaddix and Joanne Goldblum, the authors of Broke in America, Seeing, Understanding, and Ending U.S. Poverty. Thanks for joining us. Thanks so much for having us. That does it for this week's Vermont Conversation. You can hear this and all shows at vtdigger.org slash vermontconversation. I'm David Goodman. Thanks so much for listening.